subscribe and rate it. Five stars. Good afternoon, Bobo. How are you doing today? Good. How's it going with you? Oh, ups and downs. Uh, this is the first time we've had the chance and the chance to talk in 2022. Um, anything good or bad coming with the new year with you? Same old sh word. Same old ship. Yeah. Ship ahoy. Gotcha. Well, gosh, 2022 has been crazy for me. There's been, uh, my, my, I told you, maybe I didn't tell you, my wife's car slid down the driveway and across the road and across the grass and down a five-foot uh, retaining wall. That was cool. She wasn't in it, luckily. Yeah, you know, my driveway is slanted. Oh, it's steep as hell. Yeah, and it's been snowing here. I don't know what it's doing down there, but it's been snowing a lot here. And she comes home and parks it, and the thing slid down the driveway. She wasn't in it, luckily, at the time. She actually was inside, walked by the window and looked out, and the car wasn't there. And she goes, where's my car? And, you know, it slid down the driveway, across the road, across the grass, and down that uh, uh, retaining wall by the outbuilding. Whoa. Yeah, but it, it missed the supports for the awning. It missed the supports for the uh, retaining wall. It missed the trash cans. So it did a lot of body damage, but um, so far so good on the structural stuff. We'll see what the insurance folks said. Huh, which I guess is a good segue. Is that a good segue? segue? I don't know. Yeah, because I got that message about who we're having on today, and I was like, whoa, I was pretty excited. Yeah, this is an exciting episode, I think, for all of us. Um, uh, and, you know, of course, I, 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 I don't know if it's good or bad or I should be embarrassed or not, but I had not heard of our guest before he was suggested to us. Um, and I'm so glad that uh, he was. we were kind of steered his direction because so I think this is going to be a very informative hour. Our guest today is a gentleman named Paul Bowman. Um, he's a big footer. He's uh, part of the NAWAC. He has seen a Sasquatch, but he's also a professional anthropologist. Um, and very interesting to me is that he actually corresponded with Grover Krantz back in the day. And I understand that it had some sort of influence upon him and the direction that he took. So I cannot wait to get into this conversation. And just like you, Bobo, I'm sure you're tired of listening to me right now. Let's get into the talking with Paul. Paul, are you there? I'm here. How are you, lads? Oh, lads. We are great. Thank you. Fantastic. Um, you, are, you heard our, our lamentations for this year so far, um, but so far, so good. We're surviving. We're one week in and still alive. But let's talk about you. So, so you're, you're, you're actually a professional practicing anthropologist. Is that correct? Actually, I'm a, I'm a practicing archaeologist. I have... Which is a branch of anthropology. Yes. Right? I, I, have a, uh, I have a bachelor's in anthropology from the University of Oklahoma and a master's in anthropology slash archaeology from the University of Tulsa. Now, are, are you um, uh, digging up historical sites? Are you doing fossils, or what are you into? Well, I actually I work for the federal government, and that's my job. I basically oversee uh, Section 106 um, reviews. Now, what what are 106 reviews? I don't know what that is. Well, it's the, it, Section 106 of, is the is the federal is a portion of a federal law that triggers if there's any type of uh, federal nexus on any type of a. a public works project, a pipeline, uh, bridge replacement, any kind of development where there might be some dirt work. Uh, if, if, like I said, if there's a, uh, if there's a federal nexus that triggers federal law, which requires or can require an archeological survey. Now, do you mostly deal with historical sites or would it be like native remains that are, 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 are found or everything, all of the above. Everything. Um, so it's just, it runs the gambit, but it's, it's everything prehistoric and, and, and historic as well. Okay, so you do, you do get into some fossils though, and that sort of thing as well. Um, sometimes um, that's kind of a separate. There's a separate law for that, but I honestly, most of the archaeologists I know don't don't find them and and aren't looking. <laughs> so yeah, right. Okay. Essentially, what I, I I do what Kathy Strain does, but for a different agency. I see. Okay, and of course, Kathy Strain's been on the podcast before when she's a good friend of all of ours as well. So um, people can go back and listen to that podcast if they're interested in a little bit more what, about what Kathy does. So um, now I want to jump right into kind of your past in a way, because when I found out you were, uh, you used to correspond with Dr. Grover Krantz. Um, uh, tell me tell me a little bit about that, because Grover Krantz is one of those guys, he's kind of one of my idols, I guess, uh, for lack of a better term, in the Bigfoot world. But um, unlike a lot of my idols, I, don't, I never met him. 
Um, and I, I always regret not having reached out before he passed away somehow to, to speak with him in some sort of way. How did you start corresponding with Dr. Krantz and what did you learn from him and what kind of influence did he have upon you? Well, without going through, you know, the, the usual litany of how I got interested in this was back in the seventies. And, um, sure. and it's pretty much the same story as anybody my age that's in this, in this realm. Uh, but in the spring and summer of 1991, I found myself in a Marine combat unit in the Kuwaiti desert. And, you know, we talked about anything and everything. And somehow Bigfoot came up and I was really surprised at how many of my other, my brothers had, had either had encounters or knew people that had had encounters. And so that kind of re-sparked my interest. And when I got home from the war, that's when I started um, college at OU. I spent about an hour every day in the library looking at things I was supposed to be looking at in about three hours every day, looking for Bigfoot stuff. So, uh, and that's how I found Grover's book. And that book pretty much set me on this course. Uh, I was, I was shocked and surprised, um, that a a physical anthropologist, uh, and tenured professor had written this book that I sort of consider the Bible of, of Bigfootery. And I just cold called him. I, f- I found his number somewhere and I, I gave him a call and I talked to him several times over the course of my undergrad studies. And he was a very, very kind, open person to talk with. Um, especially n- now that I know <laughs> what academics can be like, uh, no offense to any academics out there, but, um, you know who you are and there wasn't any sort of pretense with him whatsoever. The fact that he would, would take a phone call from, an undergraduate halfway across the country to me was shocking enough, but, uh, he answered all my questions. Uh, he literally spent time listening. And at the time, you know, he mentioned, I had asked him about Oklahoma. And of course he said, well, you know, he very gently sort of tamped down any notion that there could be, you know, wood apes in in my region. He mentioned a track that he had from Missouri that he thought was very compelling you know, from the, the Southern Ozarks, um, of Missouri, but that was about it. And that's pretty much the extent of it. Um, it's interesting because I didn't know then what I know now, of course. And, you know, if if he were still alive today, we would, it would, this would be a different conversation. I feel certain that he would have, we would have, if it was able, we would have brought him out, you know, and, and basically (laughs) showed him, Hey, look, here's your spot, you know? Well, yeah, the data set was so much smaller back then because uh, um, I've read Krantz's book no less than a dozen or maybe even two dozen times. Um, I also consider it kind of the foundation of what Bigfooting is or should be, at least in a lot of ways. And in, in the book, if I remember right, and correct me if I'm wrong, if you remember more specifically than I do, I believe he said something. He's had something like 63 or so, or so specimens in his track collection at the time. That sounds right. I don't remember the exact numbers, but. Yeah, something like that, 60-something, if I remember it, maybe 80, but a 60-something, I think, from a number of individuals, and he, he kind of divvied those up. And now the track collection, the track data set is is well over 300. So at least five, maybe six times more than what he had access to at that point. So, For me, what's interesting is, and, and to some degree this applies to, to Dr. Meldrum, but what what we have done in, with the NAWAC is, is we're so far beyond – casts but footprint casts we're just in fact i don't really know of any of us that have casted a track in years it's like it's a nice novelty for us but but back then you know he was he was sort of hanging his hat i mean that was the only physical evidence that there was and so you know good on him for for trying to do the best he could um scientifically we've we sort of we've evolved past you know casting footprints and looking for footprints and and we don't ignore them. It, well, first of all, it's it's the the terrain itself is inhibitive. Uh, they're extremely rare uh, because there's so much rock there. And believe me, when when we hit a patch of soil or mud or or you know sand, we look. In fact, that that was the last one I ever saw, which was most was a, probably a juvenile. It was it was only six or seven inches long, and it was a bare footprint in wet mud uh, approaching the creek. And I remember thinking, I took a picture of it and I thought, ah, oh, this is cool. This is like the first track I've ever found down here. Um, so we don't ignore them. We just don't, they're, they're so few and far between and so rare. Uh, the substrate just doesn't, doesn't provide a, a good surface for, for, for casting. 
Oh, yeah, I, I feel you there. That's true of most of uh, the areas that I look in as well. But I would still strongly encourage a group to record them uh, with plaster casts every way you can because through them, you can learn maybe one individual favors this side of the valley, the other one favors the other. So you found an individual. What if you find that individual, uh, that same individual, two years later and it's larger? That can help you calculate growth rates. There is so much that can be learned from them. I, I wouldn't. I heard a, a researcher last year saying, what's one more footprint going to teach us? So much. But then again, that's my area of focus as well. So I, I would strongly recommend the group to start focusing more on that to learn about them. If, if I could, if I, you don't mind my two cents. And I hope you don't take offense at what I'm I, saying. I don't. I, let me, I should probably further clarify in that we have a lot of new members that, and old as well, that, that, that do like to focus on that. They carry HydroCal. And, and we, I know we have some down there. Good. Uh, I, it's, that's more of a personal thing for me. Yeah. Yeah. We should all do what we're interested in, in the course. And it's, it's not that I don't, and in fact, looking back, I, I kind of wished I had taken a cast of the juvenile print, um, that I saw. It was very clear. It was fresh. Um, your point's well taken. Yeah, that would have been interesting because so few juvenile tracks are in the data set too. Um, there's this whole stretch of eight to 12 inches that is almost missing from the data set. We have a lot of 13s to 16s and a, and a, and a handful or more of like seven, eight inches, four inches, that's all that stuff. But that in-between size is almost absent from the database. So we have almost no data at all about their growth rate and such, unfortunately, because of that. Practices are so human-sized, I mean... But you would think they'd be wider in breadth, and that, that's part of the interest, in, and at least my interest. I have one. I just got a, about a nine-inch one, uh, nine, maybe 10, but I think it's nine if I remember right. It's under latex right now, um, which is rather informative. But nonetheless, nonetheless, uh, we, we digress. There's just so much that has been added to the plate uh, since, since Grover's time. And gosh, wouldn't it, it would be just incredible just to see how, he, how he's evolved with the subject matter along with the data that goes with it. You know, where would he be today? Where would his, where would his thoughts be? I think he'd be right there with the rest of us, you know? I mean, the data is pretty overwhelming at this point, that uh, these things are rather thinly but widely spread throughout the uh, continent. Well, and, and again, it's like, it's it, it, there's almost this 20th century sort of paradigm uh, for this this endeavor uh, and this this subject matter. And now we're in the 21st century, and we've 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 stacked on so many different things. There's so much that's that's happened, um, and I'm speaking, you know, mainly for our organization's um, sake. Um, you know, we didn't know what we didn't know 15 years ago, and so much has been, you know, has been added and recorded and, and witnessed and experienced, and it's just in some ways it's almost overwhelming. And I have a real hard time explaining to non Bigfooters about area X and everything that I've, and, and, and to be honest, the, when I finally had my, my first visual in 2014, it wasn't that it was a letdown. It was just kind of, it was like an anti-climax, you know, it's like, Oh, okay. Well, finally, <laughs> you know, cause I'd had so many things happen leading up to that. What did you see? Well, I saw an ape <laughs> and it, it happened so fast and it was, it was fleeting. My first instinct was, who is that? Who the hell is down there in the creek? So much so that I leaned over. Bob, Bob Strain was, was on my right shoulder. He was looking down the road, and I was looking you know, at a 90-degree angle down t- towards the creek. And I leaned over, and I said, Bob, I said, who's, who's down there? And he kind of leaned back over his shoulder and said, well, Daryl's down there somewhere. And I thought, oh, okay, it must be Daryl. But then... I started thinking about it and I thought, wait a second, wait a second. No, that's, I know what Daryl was wearing. Daryl had a rifle in a, in a single part, single point harness, you know, low on his chest. And this thing was not carrying anything. It was moving very fluidly and effortlessly in a spot where I've sprained my ankle a couple of times. There's loose rock covered in vines and briar and, and poison ivy. And, and this thing was walking like it was taking a stroll in the park, you know? And so I thought, and, and I, that's why I kind of smiled at myself. I thought, you just saw a damn wood ape. And, uh, and about 10 minutes later, Daryl comes from farther East back to our position. He had been chasing two black ones that he had just busted in the Creek and they ran upstream and he had p- pursued. And so when I, when he stepped out of the woods, I realized, no, I, that was not Daryl. And it kind of, that's when it kind of hit me and kind of freaked me out a little bit. And from that point, it took me about 24 hours to sort of process the whole 
the whole thing. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, but yeah. So I say it was anticlimactic, but that's not really true. I mean, it 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 kind of rattled my cage. What was the distance? It was about seventy yards, and there was I could see movement. I could see someone walking sort of at a forty five degree angle towards me down the creek bank, and I could uh, and I thought, oh, someone's down there. I thought, and there were, it was headed towards, there was these two trees that kind of went up and formed a V where you could see in between the two. And there was a patch of, uh, an open patch there. And the sun was shining right down into that open patch. And this thing was going to, about to walk right in front of it. So I thought, well, here in about three seconds, I'm going to, I'm going to figure out, I'm going to see who it is. So my mind was already sort of prepped to see a person. And then when I saw it, it, I just, it was, it was moving so fluidly and it, and it, it didn't fit the classic Patty frame. And we've had multiple members that have seen at least one large gray, one that we call old gray, that's ever bit of eight feet tall. And it, it meets that classic uh, definition, you know, tree trunks for legs, just this massive creature. This thing was not, it was, it was built more like a running back. You know, it had like a V cut to its, to its waist and its shoulders were very broad and after I started thinking about it and re, sort of re, replaying it in my head, that's when I realized, wait a second, this thing, I could see the chest was, was like a dark grayish, almost an olive drab color compared to its arms and, and, and shoulders and head. And uh, it, had, it was reddish, kind of a reddish brown. It had a halo from the top of its head, and it did have a pointed head. And it had this sort of reddish halo all the way over its shoulders and its arms because the sun was shining, you know, against that hair. And that's, you know, and I realized, no, that was not, that was not a person. That was, that was an ape. It's just almost mind boggling. I wouldn't believe it if I haven't experienced it for myself. And so it's difficult to really t- to talk about with folks. And, um, and you can tell them, well, read our monograph. You know, we published this monograph, I think in 2014 or 15 and, there's so much that's been stacked onto that. We've got six or seven years of extra, you know, encounters to, to add to the, to the pile. And it's just, it's almost mind numbing how much goes on down there. And of course, you know, people will go down there and they'll spend a week and, and they'll say, well, it was, it was slow. Nothing happened. And it's like, then you look at their notes and it's like, well, we had 15 wood knocks. We had an Ohio howl. We had a vocalizations and it just, and it's like, well, that's not slow. I mean, it's just not, this, I guess they build it up in their mind and they think, well, you know, there's going to be apes running around the compound, you know, beating their chest all day long. And it, that just doesn't happen, but it, there's so much that goes on there. It's just, it's almost stupid to be honest. Can we expect another monograph like of, you know, chapter two? That's a good question. We, you know, we published uh, the tag seven paper with very, very little fanfare and very little uh, reaction, um, even within sort of the Bigfoot community. But that's not actually that's not a bad idea, um, because again we've we've accrued so much more. Uh, maybe even an addendum or something to the original monograph uh, might be in order. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. What have you learned about, especially from Area X? Like, what have you learned about Sasquatch behavior that really surprises you, or is there any? Any uh, patterns you've found? I think just the fact that in the early days, you know, people would just sort of throw this out and say, well, they, they migrate. You know, they, people would state it as if it was some sort of fact that everyone knows. And it's like one thing that, and especially this experience that I just mentioned, they don't leave the valley. I mean, they may leave the valley, but they don't leave that that part of, of the state, um, best we can tell. And that, that alone is kind of surprising. Because there's sightings that happen all over Southeast Oklahoma, that, all that tells me is that there's other troops. You know, we've got a troop there in that valley, and they don't ever leave. And just the, the I would say maybe the boldness, um, that's something that, that kind of surprised me. Uh, you'd think that with what we seem to think about the whole phenomenon, they, they, they tend to avoid people. Um, but And these do too, um, to some degree, obviously, but they're also pretty bold, and they they kind of jack with us, you know, or they have in the past. And that's, that's interesting to me. Um, the fact that they would kind of be harassing, I guess you could say, um, taunting. That's, that's pretty fascinating. And, and what's interesting is that for me anyway, is that I, I didn't, I never counted myself as any kind of a skeptic really. 
Um, but there were some things I just couldn't get my head around. I just, and for one, looking back, it's like, why did I, why didn't I, it should have been obvious to me. Like, for example, like wood knocks, for some reason, I just couldn't get my head around the fact that these apes were, you know, cracking trees somehow. And, and, and Daryl Collier once asked, he said, well, what is it then? I'm like, I don't know. I can't, I, clearly it's not, you know, it's not a, a black bear or a cougar or a deer. And, you know, um, I just, for some reason, it just didn't make any sense to me. And then I started hearing them, you know, and then we'd have, we'd have something happen in camp or we'd have a rock throw and then we'd have, or like what happened last year, you know, this thing is walking down the Creek, you know, making all this gibberish and then crack, he hits a tree twice, you know? And so, so you can associate, you know, an ape encounter with a wood knock. Was it wood on wood? Are you sure? Or could have been rock or, or a clapping for example? No, it, it's, I mean, what I heard, I mean, what I heard sounded like a, you know, Louis, Louisville slugger. Uh, but but it wasn't seen though. I, I, I want to make that clear. No, okay, no. So it was not seen doing it. No. So it's still open to. And we've heard, okay. and we have heard, we have heard wood knocks that were knocks rather that could be rock clacks or could be a rock again. I mean, there's you know every one of them is different. Um, they all have similarities, but they're also different. So yeah, it's that's just speculation, of course. But that's about it. I mean, it's just th- the fact that you know, of course, growing up and and then you know well into the nineties when I first started getting back into this, it's like you tend to think of these as singular creatures and you know, that in itself was, was pretty eye opening. The fact that no, we think we have an entire troop down here and that's incredible. (laughs) Honestly, it's incredible. You know, and again, like I said, it's like if I, if I wasn't experiencing these things and my, some of my best friends on this planet weren't experiencing these things for themselves, it would be very difficult for me to believe. Now, to go a little bit outside or go way outside Area X, I understand that you're also very involved and deeply interested in the Almasty, um, which is fascinating because we it's almost nobody is. I think that's fantastic. Tell us a little bit about that journey. It kind of parallels not only the subject matter, but but how I came about, you know, learning about them. And, and obviously it was it was mostly because of uh, Myra Shackley's book. I'm still living, uh, which came out in 83, I want to say 84. And again, it was, you know, I I spent so much time at the library at OU. I mean, this is way before the the time of the internet. I spent a lot of time digging through old files, old books, um, you know, microfiche, all kinds of stuff. And somehow I came across her book and I was so ate up with the whole, you know, concept of this, you know, giant hairy ape that I was, I was sort of a, I, I don't want to say I was ambivalent about it, but I was like, I was, it was sort of an aloof topic for me. I thought, Oh, so this is not really a Bigfoot, but you know, but I was very intrigued of course. And so, you know, I've sort of recently gotten back into, I'm actually writing a book about the subject and sort of taking a deep dive on, on, on the subject. And it's, for me, I think it's and what I've, what I've found is that, and you're right, there's not a whole lot out there. There's not a whole lot of people out there looking into it. And it sort of gets conflated with, with the Bigfoot subject and which I think is really, uh, it does both subjects, um, a disservice because these are not clearly not the same creature. Now, now we, we have a pretty wide audience of listeners and whatnot, and there's some, you know, real hardcore Bigfoot nerds like, you know, like us three, for example. But there's also a lot of people who are kind of new to the subject and stuff. Can you explain what an almasty is, perhaps, for, for people who are listening who don't know? The, the similarities, of course, to, this, to the Bigfoot is that it's, it's a hairy biped. It's a, an upright, um, bipedal man essentially, but that's pretty much where the, the similarities stop. Um, the average height is anywhere between five, three and five, five, and usually no more. It's very, very manlike in its, uh, facial morphology and almost uh, across the board. Uh, the descriptions say it looks like a weird, ugly man, but only completely covered in hair and, uh, it has no language. It, it, it speaks with gibberish and it's, you know, but, but when they go further in the explanation, it has extremely pronounced brow ridge, a flat nose, large teeth, and, and a, lacking a chin. And so it, now they're, and, and we're talking very specific, very consistent descriptors um, that go back centuries and essentially spans uh, east of, you know, the Black Sea all the way to Siberia. Have you looked into the, 
what was that Colonel? What was it not Kasparov that captured that one in 1941? You know, and they, it was hot indoors and all that. And they said they found new types of lice. Have, did you ever look into that? Like, did you try to track down where the samples ended up? I'm still, yeah, I'm still kind of looking into that one. There's, there's actually a couple of, of incidents um, going back into the twenties where there's been reports of one shot and it was examined, examined by a physician. There's, there's one in Mongolia that took place in the early thirties where a carcass was found. There's, and, and unfortunately most of the, the habitat or the, I guess the environments where these things are seen also happen to be um, communist countries. So there seems to be a higher interest from a scientific standpoint, but we have to remember that, that science was nationalized in, in Russia and, and in Mongolia. And so that's a, that's a really good question. And I don't have any answers because there are, there are hair samples, there's scat samples, there's, there's a skin um, from a, a monastery in Northeastern Mongolia, uh, complete with the face and, and, that was used as a, a ritual item that had hung on the ceiling of this, uh, this monastery for a century or more. And so nobody seems to know what happened to that thing. Um, so there's all kinds of these sort of rabbit holes, if you will. And they often lead to dead ends, unfortunately. So, but kind of back on the description, it's like essentially what they're describing is a Neanderthal, uh, or possibly a Homo erectus. And, when we reconstruct these things from, from their skeletons, I mean, the finished product is exactly what these witnesses are seeing. And so this is, this is where it's clearly distinct from, from a Bigfoot or a Sasquatch. You know, I do have a footprint cast um, from uh, an Almasty. Um, one in, in my, in my data set. And, uh, it is a remarkable, uh, it's remarkably similar to a Neanderthal footprint because we do have, um, Neanderthal footprints on record. Um, it is very, very similar to, uh, Neanderthal, but, um, and I, I think, uh, the question is still open about, uh, Denisovans as well. I mean, maybe that's a part of the culprit or one of the two new human species that were described this past July, uh, July, 2021, two new human species, um, both very closely related to Neanderthals was, uh, were, um, were, were officially described in journals. Um, one of them got all the attention called dragon man. Cause that's a way sexier name. Um, the other one is, uh, described, uh, and came out of Israel and I forget the name of that one, but, um, but they're very close relatives of, uh, Neanderthals. So I, there's a lot of possibilities on the table there. And I think Neanderthal is as good as any of them. And see, that's, that's another reason what, what prompted me to want to write this book is that since Shackley's book, um, there really hasn't been much else, at least from a scientific standpoint, on the subject. And what, what I found sort of fascinating um, to kind of help bolster the argument is that, um, so you have these sightings, um, and these go back centuries. Um, this isn't something that just started in the 1960s. And the people that largely are, are seeing them are mostly uneducated, um, probably illiterate, um, definitely did not have, you know, the influence of social media and, and pop culture to sort of, you know, inspire their thoughts. And I mean, we're talking, you know, herders, nomads, Farmers, um, woodstackers, people that, you know, rural people that live in these mountainous regions, you know, particularly the Caucasus of Georgia, um, the Pamirs, and then the Altai Mountains in Mongolia, but also southern Siberia. See, that's, that's where the, the bulk of the Almas or the Almasti um, sightings come from. <laughs> but then when you, when you start digging further, that also happens to be the same exact territory where Neanderthal sites are found. And the cave at Denisova, um, where the Denisovans were, were located, is only about 500 miles north of the Altai Mountains. So 15 years ago, we didn't, it hadn't been discovered yet. And so there's, it's opened the door as far as possible candidates, which to me only, only bolsters the argument of, you know, for their possible existence. And that, that's a story that needs to be told as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Now that's another way that um, the, uh, recent discoveries and the progress we've made since Krantz's book has kind of turned. I think that's a way. Uh, Krantz would be very surprised. I think because again, in that in Krantz's book, and if you, and 
listeners, if you have not read Krantz's book, what are you doing? Don't listen to us. Go read Krantz's book. Turn off the radio. We're going to be here next week, too. You can catch up on us later. Go read Krantz's book. Um, but And there's a whole chapter in there, like, what, what could Bigfoots be? And, of course, he comes on the Gigantopithecus thing. But um, he in, in somewhere in that chapter, he says something more or less like the more, the more different species that are claimed out there, the less credible they all become. And now that's exactly opposite. That's exactly opposite, where now that we know the prevalence of the hominin lineage um, and how many different species of our own genus, the genus Homo, were alive um, at the same time and oftentimes in the same places, we would expect a worldwide hairy hominoid phenomenon, and that's exactly what we get. So it's kind of turned Krantz's statement on its head a little bit, and I don't think anybody would be more happy to be wrong in a statement than Krantz would with that statement. Well, and also, you know, it, it's it's worthy to note that back in those days, and that's when I was doing my undergrad, and when he was teaching it, um, the the family tree, so to speak, was you know had less branches, and you know there was this sort of pantheon of, of hominids. Um, when I started grad school in, in 2016, it's like I had to learn a whole new set of hominids that, that had been added to the tree, and 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 even since then. Um, there's been more like you, like you, like you said. And so it's that level of, of discovery has been happening at, you know, breakneck pace and, and trying to keep up with it all is sometimes overwhelming. But like you said, it just, it adds more candidates. Um, and that's, and that's sort of my point is that, that these are in regions where these sightings, you have this folklore, uh, that's sort of folded into their, their national fabric and, and in, in their culture and, then you have this long line of, of sightings. In fact, I would even venture to say it, you'd have a body of, of reports that that are equal to or rival to that of John Green's with the Sasquatch. So you have an equal amount of, of eyewitness accounts, very compelling, and then and then you have, but you also have the fossil record. You've got these bones, uh, you know, particularly in in the, the trans Baikal region and, and the Altais, you've got, you know, Denisovan and Neanderthal and modern humans. And so, uh, and that's, that's exactly what you would expect to find if that's where, you know, you don't, you don't have Neanderthals in Hawaii. Well, you also don't really have almost sightings in Hawaii either. So, um, it just, they all kind of interconnect and that's sort of what I'm, that's what I'm, I'm interested in is being able to connect those dots and kind of weave it all together. But it also, my interest lies in the fact that the potential, uh, the scientific potential is, is it, it almost seems criminal not to investigate it and not to look into it. If, if, if it's, it seems outrageous when you say it like this, but if there is a relic population of Neanderthal or any other early human hominin that's still alive and still walking the earth, that's something that we need to be looking for. Absolutely. I was just thinking, like, maybe I should make up a book of citations and start issuing citations to uh, scientists who are not interested in this subject. Well, and I can tell you, and kind of back on the whole Bigfoot thing, it's like in in the graduate level class that we taught, um, the professor she she would she had a blurb. She would actually when we uh, we would bring in the Gigantopithecus skull, and she'd have a brief lecture on it. And she would even mention, she said, you know, some people think this is what's responsible for all the Bigfoot sightings. But, of course, we all know the Bigfoot doesn't exist. Ha, 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 ha. But, you know, a lot of my colleagues, you know, in, in, in quiet circles would, would say, yeah, this is – nobody wants to admit it, you know, because everyone's worried about, you know, their, their academic careers and worried about, you know, getting a job. And, you know, and, and nobody wants to talk about verboten subjects. But, but there's a lot more out there as far as scientists that are truly interested, you know, interestingly enough, kind of off subject, but, but Graham Hancock, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but there's a lot of closet archeologists <laughs> that listen to Graham Hancock. I think that's interesting. Um, and I think the same could be said with, with, within, you know, within anthropology as a whole, let's just say that when, when, you know, I've gone out to some of these, 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 uh, excavations with large numbers of, of shovel bums and archeologists out there, you see a lot of Bigfoot stickers. <laughs> and I'll just leave it at that. Well, yeah, because even if they don't think they're real or, or publicly say they're not real, I think each of them secretly hopes they are. Absolutely. And, and non, non-scientific non types, too. Um, I get that a lot. You, know, you hear that a lot 
people just don't want to be laughed at, you know? And so they keep, they keep their, their real thoughts to themselves. And then when, when, if the opening presents itself, you know, God, let's just put it this way. I think if, 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 if a specimen is ever collected or one gets hit by a Mack truck somewhere and the balloon goes up and everybody knows that Bigfoot is real, there's going to be a lot of people across the world that are saying, I knew it. I knew it all along. You know, I really believe that. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. On a typical Sasquatching sort of expedition for you, whether Area X or not, um, what are some of the techniques and some of the experiments, for lack of a better term, um, that that you would deploy or try? Well, and of course, the group has has they sort of run the gambit. You know, we've done the whole camera trap effort. That was all we did for about five years, and you know, we had the the latest greatest um, technology at our disposal and. And again, that was back in the days when we didn't know what we didn't know. And we weren't even really having encounters. Actually, we kind of were. We just didn't realize what they were. And when we when we shifted gears in 2011 and decided to start doing, you know, these long term, um, you know, months long operation, you know, continual operations with with personnel, that's when everything started happening. And you know, it's as if these guys were like, oh, those funny pink stick figure people are in here again. We'll just hide out. They'll be gone in a couple of days. Well, after we, when we didn't leave, that's when they realized, hey, these, these assholes aren't leaving. So then that's when they started interacting with us. And it's been, you know, gangbusters ever since. But we've tried everything. We've tried, you know, I'm, I'm also a uh, former Marine, as I mentioned. And, and so uh, we have several, you know, ex-military types. Um, so we've tried, you know, everything from getting gillied up and, you know, kind of Ricky recon stuff and trying sort of, you know, military patrol tactics and, and, you know, constructing sniper hides and all that. We've tried that. We've tried the naturalist approach, you know, kind of whistling through the forest with our cameras over our shoulders, that sort of thing. We've tried everything and, you know, we've done crazy thing. You know, I, one of our members, famously brought his golf clubs one time and he started chipping balls up onto the side of the mountain just to see if he could, you know, get a response out of him. And the irony of that little exercise was that months later, someone found one of his golf balls like two miles down the road up on top of the mountain in, in between the crook of, of two tree branches and stuck in the middle of the tree. I mean, obviously it wasn't his. I mean, he didn't hit it up there. It'd be a pretty good drive. Yeah. Two miles. Yeah. He's not that good. Trust me. Um, you know, so we, a lot of that kind of stuff's on the fly. Um, a lot of times, um, you know, thinking outside the box, I mean, that's sometimes that's what, you know, what, what gets paid dirt, but we've, we've, believe me, we've talked about everything. We've debated pretty much everything. And we, and, and it's always nice to have, you know, new members to come in and, and every once in a while, someone will have a really fresh new idea. It's like, you know, we, we never thought of that. Let's try it. There doesn't seem to be, you know, a hard and fast rule as to what works 100% of the time because nothing works 100% of the time. And now it's kind of gotten to where we, we sort of will leave it up to each team. Personally, what I, what I like to do. Um, and if, if I'm a team leader, that's what we're doing for the week is, and that's using the ghost blinds. Um, they were very productive in earlier years. And so I thought we still have these things. Why don't we break those out and start using those? And instead of just trying to sit out in the daytime, let's sit out at night as well. You know, we're constantly tweaking some of our other ideas like the, the overwatch tent. Um, we brought back camera traps and now we've, we've disabled the, the infrared triggers, um, you know, in attempts to, in, in the off chance that maybe they can see in the, in the infrared spectrum in, in some degree. And that's what's keeping them away from cameras. So we're always kind of tweaking old ideas and sometimes revisiting them. You know, you can, you can think this to death. Some people, some people think that, you know, some of the more aggressive type a individuals in our group will elicit a response just by coming into the Valley. You know, I mean, how do you quantify something like that? Well, you can't, right. But is there any truth to that? Maybe, you know, maybe they know what, what, what truck the guy drives. Oh, here's that guy again. Son of a bitch. You know, I mean, we don't know. Sure. We really don't know. Um, but that's a pie. Kind of like anything's on the table. 
really with these creatures that that's what's so amazing about it is that the, just when you think you you've got them figured out you know something new happens or there's some new sound or or you know it's like god those crazy apes man i mean they just it never never ceases to amaze me how how interesting and fascinating they can be being down at Area X as much as you have been, you've probably experienced and heard and seen some pretty weird stuff. I mean, the golf ball up in the tree is a, a fantastic example. Um, what are some of the other sights and sounds that you might have run across that you didn't expect? Well, we've had multiple members that have had this kind of strange car door experience. Car doors. I, I've also heard that. No, yeah, it sounds like a car door. Like, what else can you call it? I've, I've heard the same thing. This is worthy of pointing out. This is actually what led to my, my visualization um, in 2014, we've been sitting on the east side of this cabin. There's a little side porch, and there's a big um, shade tree there. So we've been kind of sitting in the shade, and we were. It was hot, you know, steamy, you know, August afternoon, and um, our trucks were parked, you know, 20, I don't know, 30 meters away, maybe, um, in front of the cabin. And I hear this car door slam, and it, I mean, when I say slam, I mean it sounded like a 1978 Lincoln you know, just someone slamming the hell out of this thing, like a big, heavy steel door. And so I kind of looked, and I, I looked around and, and others, you know, obviously heard it too. So I kind of leaned over around the corner so I could see around the corner. I didn't see anybody at the vehicles. And I just, and Daryl had gone inside to take a nap. And so I just assumed, well, it must've been Daryl. Maybe he's getting something out of his truck. <clears throat> About 10 minutes later, Daryl comes out all bleary eyed and he had just woken up for his, from his nap. And I said, did you come out earlier to get something on your truck? He says, no, man, I just woke up literally just now. So that's when I kind of was like, Oh boy. And about that time is when we heard a rock impact one of the steel roofs of, of a cabin adjacent cabin down the road. And then that's what prompted everyone to go investigate the rock throw. And <clears throat> I was literally sitting around eating my beanie weenies and wearing my dry socks, probably still in my underwear Yes, in the middle of the afternoon, um, I finally decided, you know, maybe it's time for me to get in the game and get dressed and actually do something. And so that's when I, I put on my camis and, and uh, you know, put my boots on. And then I, you know, 10, 15 minutes later, I'm heading down the road. And that's what ultimately uh, led to my, my visualization. But it started with the car door. Yeah, what, what are your thoughts on that? Like, what do you think they're doing there? I mean, my, my truck was unlocked. So it's, it's conceivable that, you know, they had gone over and opened my car door and slammed it. And there were other vehicles there too, but, um, I, that's one of those weird ones. You know, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, th I think they're imitating it with their mouth. I don't think they're slamming. Cause I heard that stuff at Bluff Creek and that cannot be made where I was. There just simply was not a car there. Oh, I've heard it all over the place. Yeah. So it, and see, that's one of those things that's like, it's really hard to get your head around. Because it's like, I mean, I don't think I could imitate a car door slam. I mean, and, you know, even if I had to, and this sounded so loud and so distinctly a car door slam. And yet we do seem to know that they, they mimic everything. Um, you know, we've had multiple members making strange sounds. One guy does a really good peacock and he was up on the side of the mountain doing a peacock. And sure enough, he heard one right back and, you know, so we, we know that they, we seem to know, we think that they mimic, uh, sounds that they hear. Um, we've heard this, you know, uh, Alton refers to it as the angel choir where it's just sort of a multi-tonal angelic sounding vocal, like, like something out of a church choir. So, yeah, so it's, it's, it's very conceivable that, you know, that they've heard car door slams, of course. And so they, they mimic that. It just seems remarkable that they could, but yeah, it's just, it's a head scratcher. Um, and I, you know, that's not the only time, I mean, others have heard that too. And again, they've heard it in a, in a context where it couldn't have been anybody else. And it often led to, you know, an encounter of some kind. So, I mean, it's just no other way to say it. It's just craziness. Yeah. They're weird critters. That's for sure. You know, I just remembered that, that when I was down there last year and it was when, it was when, uh, Mark McClurkin and I had, um, were gone, we went into to install the stove you know, we and this thing had slapped the outside the, the the door while we were in the cabin, and we'd heard a, a kind of a growl or a, a bark, sort of a sound, just on the outskirts of camp earlier that night. And then the next morning, about five five thirty in the morning, it was you know just starting to get twilight, I guess, and and um, and I heard 
a car door outside the cabin window, just right outside where I was sleeping. I heard a car door slam and I thought, Oh, Mark, Mark must be out. He must be up. You know, maybe he went outside to, you know, take a leak or something and needed something out of his vehicle. And so, but then I, I, then I realized, no, he's snoring. He's right next to me in in the next bunk over snoring. And so I looked out the window thinking, well, I hope no one's breaking into my vehicle. Of course, no one's going to be down there at five in the morning, breaking into somebody's vehicle. It's just that the remoteness is, is you can't overstate it enough, but, and of course it, you know, I have no explanation. My truck was unlocked. So it's possible that now, actually, now that I'm, now I think about it, when I open my door, uh, it beeps. I have a Toyota, um, 2017 Toyota Tacoma and it didn't beep, but I definitely heard a car door. There was another time when, when Alton Higgins was up on top of the roof of one of the older cabins that we used to stay at. Um, and you know, it's this old rusty corrugated tin and he was up there sweeping for rocks and he's stepping on this tin and it's, you know, it's kind of buckling underneath his feet and it's, you know, crumpling and making that sort of strange tin sound. And, and somebody was like, Alan, stop, stop, stop. And something was mimicking that exact sound that he had just been making, you know, inadvertently by stepping around on this, this tin roof, the classic, you know, rock throws and wood knocks are just sort of like blase now because they do so many other strange things. Then there's the, the squish, the squishing mouth sound. The, I mean, I can't even really do it. It's just this a weird squishy sound that they do with their mouths, you know? And I heard someone mention that and then I heard it and I was like, Oh my God, you know, I totally get that. You know, I, I, I'm a musician. I have a degree in music. And so like, I'm really cued into the sounds around me. And when I hear an unusual sound, sometimes automatically without me even th- I try to copy that sound with my own mouth. You know, or, or copy. Oh, that's a certain pitch, and I'll, I'll sing the pitch back to it. And it's not something I don't. I, it's just like an, I, I could. I can, of course, control it. You know, but it's just something I do. Like in my car, I hear something, and I'll go beep. I'll beep back at it, or something like that. Uh, my wife and I even like sometimes we we have a game that we try to imitate sounds in the house. Like, oh, that's the refrigerator. You know, and it's ridiculous, but that's that's we did that. It's, it's hilarious and it's a lot of fun. Um, what's this sound, sweetie? Oh, that's the fish tank or whatever, you know, that, that kind of thing. And, uh, I have that inclination in myself because I'm very tuned in to the sounds around me. And it's probably why I have a degree in music. And, and so them being apes as they are, whatever they are, hominins or whatever, whatever they are with Sasquatches, they're obviously clued into sounds. They communicate, um, possibly with some sort of weird language thing. They, they knock, they call, they, they're keep, they're probably keep a track of each other. As they move through the woods, just like the mountain gorillas do, which means with their ears, um, to be so, and also they're so often found in completely quiet areas, like little bowl shaped valleys that are completely quiet and you can hear everything. I, th- I think it's obvious that these things are completely tuned in to the sound, the, the soundscape in which they find themselves. And I, I, I think one of the side products would be to try to imitate sounds that they hear like that, just like what you're describing now. That, that's not surprising to me at all. I'll tell you this. I, I too, am a musician. Um, I play several instruments, but probably the most remarkable um, in this context would be the great Highland bagpipes. And I have taken my pipes down there on a number of occasions, and I haven't heard them try to imitate that. <laughs> hmm. Well, they're bagpipes, so they may not want to. Exactly. Yeah, that's just a bagpipe slam, so I'm sorry about that, Ben. Low-hanging fruit. I'm, you I'm used to it. Forget Trust it. me. Um, although I will say I was down there um, a couple of years ago with, with my cousins, and my one of my cousins got sick and had to leave, and so I wanted to show him the creek, and so I walked him over to the creek. And my our other cousin, who's also a bagpiper, um, he, he fired up the pipes, and, and um, we came back to camp, and then – Cousin Scott left, and on his way out, he saw Old Gray, and he was a skeptic. He he was like, eh, he didn't really believe in any of it. And on his way out, it so I, I I can't say that the bagpipes maybe drew drew him in. Maybe he was there the whole time. I don't know, but yeah, it's interesting. And and I've been down there with Daryl with my mandolin, and he's on guitar, and we you know jammed a little bit, and and others have brought their guitars in and stuff. So it's you know they're going to hear stuff. They're going to hear music. Everything's on the table for sure. Uh, yeah. That's really what it boils down to is that, you know, um, all bets are off 
everything's you know possible with this this creature but they are definitely they're they're freaks man they're freaks i don't know how else to put it um and that's that's that might be probably the singular most surprising thing you know because you get this idea in your head based on you know green's book Krantz's book you know meldrum's book all these you sort of get this typecast picture of what these things are going to be like and then when you're actually out there and they're coming around and they're doing these crazy things and it's just like i can't believe this you know and there was one incident where we were we were at the location where we ended up taking rob lowe and his sons for his his episode there um but it was the first time we'd been in that spot and we literally heard you know these mouth pops and so daryl started doing them back and there was this exchange that went on for 15 minutes of this thing mouth popping you know at us and then we just kind of we started talking and sort of forgot about it and like an hour goes by and it's like you know, I want to, let's just try it again. And Daryl did a mouth pop and he started getting returns. This thing was, you know, 50, 60, 70 yards away. We had thermal scopes, couldn't see anything, you know, but it's like, what else in nature does that? It's just every time you think you, you got them pegged down, they, they come up with some new shit and it's just mind boggling. They're astonishingly good at what they do. That's for sure. And they, they do some wacky stuff. Absolutely. So is most of your experience like firsthand, encounters is that area x or were you having did you have any hot spots that you went to before that and if you, is there any similarities between like vocalizations or anything like no um not me personally no we've had we've had multiple members that have had similar experiences elsewhere one comes to mind i think it happened in louisiana maybe uh or southeast arkansas somewhere where they had this this made up like this spoke this strange, scary monster vocalization that was done in a studio somewhere and they played it, they call blasted it, you know, just for, for giggles. And they got a return that was almost remarkably the same. And, and they knew that it wasn't an ape sound because it was someone literally made this sound like on a synthesizer in a, in a recording studio in New York. And so, you know, we, there's been multiple encounters, mainly vocal, uh, vocalizations, um, in what we used to call area Y, which was the big thicket national preserve down, um, in Texas, uh, Northeast of Houston. Um, that place, uh, apparently is crawling with apes as well. Um, and so, yeah, we've had, we, uh, you know, I've, I did some survey work, uh, in the Sam Houston national forest and I encountered the skunky, you know, wet horse smell, you know, I didn't spend enough time down there, uh, otherwise, but I mean, so I, but I know other members have, I mean, uh, our chairman, Mike Mays, he, he had his first visual there, um, in Sam Houston. So, you know, it just so happens that, you know, area X is the closest for me personally. Um, but I, I have, you know, I have gone, I've gone down to area Y I've gone to Sam Houston, I've been to San, as the Sabine national forest, did some stuff up in Cal or in Colorado, um, one time. So, you know, it, we talk about it and focus on it so much because it's our spot, you know, and that's where we, we have our most activity and, um, and it's easiest. It's kind of a central area, you know, for most of our members. Well, it's also private land. And I think that's a big part of it too, is that, you know, you're pretty confident no one else is going to be tromping around. That's, that's correct. And so, um, I thought anyone, could, I thought anyone could go there. It's just hard to get to. Well, <clears throat> so it's complicated. You know, we have a lease with with a private land entity, and and so it's surrounded by essentially surrounded by public land, and but it is very very hard to you really have to want to be going in there to get in there. And see, I used to have land. We had some family land, also you know on the fringes of, of national forest, but it was all pub or private land, and it was almost impossible to get to even with a four wheel drive. And I used to think, ah, you know, I, there's nothing, I haven't seen anything as bad as, as our place, you know, getting in there. And so when I first heard about Area X, I kind of laughed, but they were right. It's, it's, it's very inhibitive. <laughs> and I mean, we've had bumpers torn off. We've had, you know, a number of, of, um, brush guards and, and, um, you know, uh, undercarriage plates and things, you know, m- numerous flat tires. And it's just like, it's just really hard on vehicles and it's hard on people just to get down there, which is part of the appeal. You know, I think it's probably fair to point out that, that, that part of the state, that place is exploding. It's becoming like this, this mini Branson. Um, and 
you know, it's the cabins go for $250, $300 a night down there. People from Dallas are buying up land all around there and putting these cabins up and renting them out as Airbnbs. You know, the, the, uh, one of the, one of the tribes, the local tribe, you know, has a pretty large tract of land down there on the lake and they're going to build a huge casino. And so it's like, it kind of underscores our mission, you know, and that, and then if you, if you look around, you know, in the area that's also privately held, there's, there's about 76,000 acres of privately held land. Most of it owned by timber companies. Um, and then you have national forest and those timber companies, you know, there's one entire side of a mountain that's gone. It's completely been clear cut. And, you know, it, it, again, it's, it's sort of, I don't mean to sound alarmist, you know, but, but we feel like we're, we're against the clock. And, and so they're losing habitat. And that's why we, you know, we feel like from a mission standpoint, we feel like that, you know, we're pressed for time. Um, clock is ticking and we just would hate, I mean, just imagine, just imagine in my mind, these things are real. I, I am not a believer. I'm a knower and I know they exist and I don't, I don't care who, who, I mean, and I, I get this all the time. It's like, well, you know, convince me. It's like, well, no, I don't really have to, <laughs> you know, their existence is not incumbent upon whether or not you believe in this thing or not. There's, they're still out there, regardless of whether you believe in it, regardless of whether I can convince you or not. So, you know, knowing that they exist, can you imagine that if they suddenly just, they, they eventually just died out before we could ever actually expose that they, that this is a living, breathing animal, they exist and they need to be protected. That's tragic. You know, I, I just would hate for that to happen. Yet again, that's a nice reference back to the Krantz book. He says that same thing in defense of his uh, stance of taking a specimen. Is that, uh, okay, we can either prove they're real and deal with it and make laws to protect them, or um, we can quietly let – possibly quietly let them go extinct and nobody ever knew about them, in which case at the end – and he's very – you know, Krantz is very brazen in a lot of ways. He said, who cares? And in a way, and we go, oh my gosh! And, but in a way, he's right. If we don't know about them and they go away, and we never know about them and never proven to be real, in a way, it doesn't matter because we never knew they were there, and that would be a cry and shame, to say the very least. Yeah, no, I, I agree, and that's again, that's why you know we look at it from a you know a conservation standpoint, and um, and and you know, I know this kind of for some people. And I've talked to a lot of people, co- old coworkers and friends and stuff like that, that just when they find out that this is one of the things I do, they're, they, and they're genuinely curious, but they really don't know anything about, you know, the phenomenon. And so you, you have these talks with them and it's like, they're still in sort of that scary monster mode, you know, and we've, we've gone way, way past that. You know, we've, we've moved on to, this is a biological, this is an animal, this is a, a you know, a primate species. Um, we think we know what it is. Um, we have a hypothesis of what it is. And so, um, and it's really hard to sort of preach that to somebody that's just in the scary monster phase. And you don't want to, you don't want to steal their thunder or make them, you know, belittle them in any way. It's just that we've sort of graduated to where we're at, you know, and now it's all about, we've got to, we've got to prove these things are real so we can protect them, you know? And, and when you, and some people are like, Oh, you know, I didn't even think of that. It's like, you know, you'll get there. <laughs> Keep looking into it and stay with it and you'll you'll get there. Yeah, Bigfooting is really more about persistence than almost any other character trait. Absolutely. Well, Paul, thank you so much for spending the last hour or so with us talking about everything that's going on in Area X and your own personal journey and also sharing about some of your research on the Almasty, which is, uh, almost nobody is doing and I, I'm thrilled to hear you're writing a book on it. I thoroughly enjoyed this. Um, you guys, I'd love to come back sometime. And this is the one, this is the one subject that I could never stop talking about. I mean, I talk to Matt almost every day and we never run out of things to say about this, this whole thing. When you get that book queued up, we'll have you back on and you can tell us about what uh, the other stuff that you've been uh, learning about by writing it. You can count on it. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's been great talking to you because you don't sound like, you know, like when you think of a scientist, you know, a guy that was in the lab, went, you know, went to college and worked as I mean, you were a police officer, uh, served in the military. So, I mean, you're uniquely qualified for what you're doing. And it's just, it's just cool to hear, you, you know, you sound like a real regular guy. You're right. I am a regular guy. I mean, it's just, I've just done a lot of interesting things and had a lot of different interesting careers and sort of always kind of followed my passion. And what's interesting about that is that I, I literally feel like 
And someone pointed this out to me the other day. It's like everything I've done in my life has kind of led to this. It's led to me being in the driver's seat of this, this subject, you know? Well, I will disagree with you one more time. You are not a regular guy. You are an exceptional guy. You're a big footer. <laughs> oh, thank you. All right. Well, thank you so much, Paul, for coming on. We really do appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, guys. All right. So there, Bobes. How was that, man? Oh, man, that was great. That was uh, got some good info. It was interesting. And yeah, I can't wait till that book comes out. And I'd like to have him back on because I'm sure he had a lot more to tell us. Well, yeah, that, that was great. And, and so excited to hear there's a book coming out eventually on the Almasty. I know how long it takes to write a book, so I won't hold my breath or anything for the next couple months or something. But I know in a couple of years, we'll be reading a little bit more research on a extraordinarily ignored subject, the Almasty and other hominoids and other parts of the world. So that is exciting news. So, all right, Bobes. Well, you want to take us out? All right, folks. Thanks for listening. Hit the like and share buttons. Spread the word. And we appreciate you listening. So until next week, keep it squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond. That's an N in the middle. And tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 